The Star Wars prequels still aren't good. This is Scott's Up Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Up Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking about the Star Wars prequels. And this is a recorded version of a long form kind of breakdown of the prequels that I did shortly after I saw Rise of Skywalker and detailed why I didn't like it. And I kind of walked myself into talking about the prequels because, yeah, there's a lot of pro- I think there's a lot of problems with them. And problems that people just try to gloss over or, like, I don't know, use. they started to use the prequels as critiques in favor of the rise of skywalker or against the last jedi so it was all very strange so <laughs> so without further ado let's get this started so okay i kind of did this to myself i knew having a long explanation about why i didn't care for the rise of skywalker would invoke discussion and i went ahead and did it anyway which of course brings up how people felt feel about the other star wars films including the prequels The prequels are one of those things that people tend to be in one of two camps. Either you love them and see them as superior to the new films in every way, or they're trash that is meant to be endlessly mocked with gifs and five-second clips until the end of time. But I realize that I've never expressed my feelings about the prequel trilogy fully, so now's as good a time as any to dive in in an explanation about why these movies didn't work for me. So let's do some house cleaning. If you're going to talk about the prequels, there's a lot of house cleaning you have to get out of the way, such as submitting your Star Wars viewing order, explaining how you reacted to the movies at the time when you saw them, and why the prequels probably aren't as bad as people believe they are. So let's get all of that out of the way. I've seen the Star Wars movies in the order that they came out. I saw the original films well before I saw the prequels and saw each of the prequels in the theater. I've seen all of the new films in the order they came out as well. So how did I react at the time? Young Scott, and to some extent current Scott, enjoys upbeat things, which meant he loved Star Wars Return of the Jedi and had fun with the first two prequel films at the time. Empire and Revenge of the Sith were too sad, so young Scott didn't care for them. My feelings have evolved over time as I've rewatched each film, hence why the darker Last Jedi might be my favorite film in the series. So let's dig into the reaction, initial reaction to the prequels. The prequel trilogy came out at the best and worst time for a beloved franchise. It came out at a time when home video was common and evolving from VHS to DVD. This meant an entire generation of fans grew up watching and re-watching every bit of these movies, ingesting lore or reading up on the expanded universe, and playing video games based on these movies. It meant you could have 13-year-old diehard fans who grew up watching all three original films but never saw one in a theater before. It was also the nascent era of internet culture, when people were quickly discovering the joys of connecting with other fans of anything, and bitching to their heart's content about every decision they didn't agree with. This soon began to include uh, video clips and meme culture, which is now about how the movies are mostly known. The I Hate Sand line has been shown in more videos than I can possibly count. And what did that mean for the prequels? At the time, nothing good. When The Phantom Menace came out, the fans could head to fan forums or post video reviews unleashed a torrent of hatred upon Lucas and the films for ruining Star Wars. Sound familiar? Attack of the Clones got even worse critical reviews and seemingly killed Hayden Christensen's career. 
While Revenge of the Sith got favorable reviews and reactions at the time, though there were still plenty of dissent. This wasn't what the old Star Wars fans wanted, and quickly turned the prequels are bad into an internet constant. And I'd argue that some of the backtracking might be an overcorrection from fans who were introduced to Star Wars via these movies, or liked them in spite of the outrage. But what did the new fans want? It's hard to say, but I anticipate a lot of the younger fans base kind of liked them, which is why they defend them so fervently now. So many of so many of them, this was their introduction to Star Wars, or a part of it, and the years of jokes at the expense of these movies and the new films they felt went in the wrong direction or no new directions has only steeled their resolve. What I'm trying to say is as much fun as it might be to watch someone deconstruct everything wrong with a Phantom Menace for a video that's longer than the movie itself, the film isn't actually that bad. For many, this was an unexpected moment of disenchantment and disappointment that made them realize their nostalgia could work against them, and then they took aim at every mistake these movies had to offer, including multiple lead actors who seemingly never recovered from it. It wasn't fair or right then, just as it isn't fair or right now. If you didn't like the character or the movie, it's not the actor's fault. Blame the writer or the director. So now, on to the prequels. So there are some things I like about the prequels. Most of the things that I like about the prequels are good or are cool or fun moments or expansions on things we've already seen or a handful of great individual moments. For instance, The Duel of Fates is one of the best John Williams compositions ever, and the lightsaber fight between Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul is solid action filmmaking. It has rightly been pointed out that it does a great job of telling a story with little to no dialogue. Also, seeing Yoda's power as a warrior, including him hopping around and yipping like Bruce Lee, is still very fun. I like seeing Jedis of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and purple lightsabers that only exist because Samuel L. Jackson loves purple. What a legend. And the future Emperor's plan is actually pretty solid in terms of bad guy master plans, and the fact that it took three movies to fall into place makes it feel more believable. I like the idea that the Jedi failure is what led to the Sith taking power. Ian McGregor as Obi-Wan is a total win, and Natalie Portman had a lot of potential, despite her character being mostly a plot device. It is fun to see Star Wars action scenes with more modern effects and expanded force powers. Star Wars movies should always feel free to get weird and goofy. Droid and clone armies, solid ideas, makes the casual destruction feel less personal. Centering an entire series of movies around an eventual fall is gutsy, even if the audience knows it's coming. And that's the big stuff I liked. The rest is harder to defend. So let's get into things people hated at the time. I think the hatred of the prequels is best expressed by a bit from Patton Oswalt. In the bit, Patton jokingly suggests that he'd use a time machine to go back and murder George Lucas with a shovel to prevent him from making the prequels. That's not the punchline, though. The punchline is Oswald giving over, overly simplistic versions of the prequel plots. The Phantom Menace shows Darth Vader as a little kid. Attack of the Clones shows Boba Fett as a little kid. Revenge of the Sith shows the Death Star during construction. The point being, Oswald never wanted to see how those things came to be. He wanted to see Darth Vader, Boba Fett, and the Death Star in action. The prequels are, for the most part, fill-in-the-blanks movies about what the Clone Wars were, about where Anakin came from, how the Emperor gained power, and how Luke and Leia ended up apart, and so on. If you didn't want that from a Star Wars movie, you were crap out of luck, and which made every other wonky thing about these movies stand out even more. So, there are some nitpicks, but these are ones that I agree with. It doesn't mean the nitpicks are right, these just ring true to me. 
the way that all of the alien characters speak in The Phantom Menace reads very close to a number of negative racial stereotypes that have permeated American culture for decades. Jar Jar Binks and his people use speech patterns that line up with negative or ignorant portrayals of African Americans, and the Trade Federation's broken English and delivery sounds like negative Asian American stereotypes. Once you hear it, it's impossible to unhear and stop cringing as you watch the film. This isn't an accusation of racism against Lucas, nothing in his personal life has shown this, but it looks like a definitive blind spot. Anakin's origin is very is a very weird sci-fi Christ story. He was magically conceived by the microorganisms that make Jedi's possible. I don't know, that's weird on every level. I liked it better when the Force was something you could tap into, like a Zen master, not something you're born with, like divine right. There's also a lot of weird mergers with CGI elements and live actors, especially in Attack of the Clones. Also, a lot of the action scenes are too long or lack any real stakes. The final lightsaber battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan is the biggest offender. It goes on for forever and then ends when Obi-Wan grabs high ground, which he could have conceivably done at any time. And also, what are they fighting for? And I don't know. Uh, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman don't didn't seem to have much screen chemistry. Since Portman was already cast, do you think they would have tested this a bit more? Lucas's approach to romance has always been a bit shaky, and it's clear no one really went over the bits in the script. There's a reason that Empire is the one where Leia and Han consummate their unspoken attraction. Lucas didn't write it, and even then Harrison Ford tweaked his lines to give you the relationship signature moment, the I know. Revenge of the Sith feels like it's rushing to get to the Star Wars status quo, and bulldozes through a lot of big moments in a damn hurry. Also thought Vader's reveal would be better than it is. It feels like all of this happens in a day, and if you're telling a story about someone's fall, it feels like there should be steps along the way. So those are the nitpicks before we get to the actual big problems that make these movies frustrating on their own terms. So let's get into the reasonable critiques, starting with character motivation. George Lucas is really good at concepts and worlds and shaping his influences into something new, and he can be he can be good at characters. But in the prequels, his lack of solid, well-defined, and interesting characters is the baseline for almost all of the other problems. I'll explain what I mean. In The Phantom Menace, the people who do the most talking are Qui-Gon Jinn, Padme, and Jar Jar Binks. And he can get some flashes in there, as does Palpatine and Obi-Wan, but these three have the most to talk about. Note how I'm not calling any of them the main character. Qui-Gon does almost nothing for the entire movie but spout exposition. He's explaining the current problem, explaining Jedi lore, or giving us information about the situation that just happened. And Liam Neeson isn't a bad guy for that role. You need someone charismatic to deliver these giant bits of information, like Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix or Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. He's the Obi-Wan type who's going to guide you through this world. He's a little rougher around the edges, hence his obsession with Anakin as a balancing agent in the Force, and apparent disdain for Jedi authority. But in general, he's, the Obi he's what Obi-Wan was in Star Wars. And now we've got Padme. Padme's job is to be the questioner and leader. She's the Leia type, the slightly confrontational one with the skin in the game who can confront the other characters. Her delayed reveal doesn't do her any favors, though. While it's meant to be a surprise, it means all the drama associated with her character is muted or added after the reveal. What this movie desperately needs is someone with strong motivations to defend Naboo as quickly as possible, since as of now, that's the only real danger. But since we don't know Padme is the queen, at least not initially, that urgency is taken away. 
She has a few moments where she's getting impatient or questions Qui-Gon's decisions, but because we already know Anakin is a future Jedi, who is at one point a massive hero, its own big problem we'll get into, it comes off as weird. It's actually way better when she reveals who she is and begins acting like someone with something to lose. She pleads for help, makes a truce with the Gungans, and gets to the front lines. How awesome would it be to see this kind of agency throughout the entire movie? Well, then you've got someone like Leia. And finally, we've got Jar Jar, who is basically there as comic relief. He's meant to be like C-3PO and R2-D2 wrapped into one character until R2-D2 shows up. That means his lines and actions are almost always played for almost always played for laughs, whether they land or not is an entirely different story. He doesn't seem to have any strong motivations and helps people seemingly because they bully him into it or he owes them a quote-unquote life debt. He does affect the plot, but it's hard to say that he's a grounded character. What you might have already noticed is how weak the emotional motivations are for our lead characters for most of the movie. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are helping Naboo because they've been asked to and generally fight for good. Padme's motivations are hidden from much of the movie, and Jar Jar and Anakin seem to go where the wind blows based on where other characters ask them to go. So while it might be cool to see two Jedis in action, or the Jedi Council, or know that R2-D2 was made by Anakin, it'd be a stretch to say we're invested in these characters outside of our connections to the previous films. It continues into Attack of the Clones, where Obi-Wan is guided to where his Jedi Council investigation goes. Anakin's primary motivation could be summed up as love or love-based revenge, when the entire movie is actually about the machinations of a supreme villain starting a war that enhances his power. This is actually why Revenge of the Sith stands out, because its characters have strong emotional motivations, possibly for the first time. Anakin is so desperate to protect his loved ones that he becomes murderous. Obi-Wan feels personally responsible for stopping Anakin because he trained him and didn't stop him in time. And Yoda feels like his rule as the Jedi Council head has failed and unsuccessfully tries to take out Palpatine before he can exert his will on the Federation. So why does this cause so many problems? Well, there's a lot of problems that will take too long to get into in this already long piece, but I'll try to summarize them here. First, if your characters don't have strong motivations, it feels less like the story is shaped by them, but rather that they're shaped by the story. Lack of agency means it's harder to get invested in their journeys. It's also harder for the audience to empathize with characters with tangential motivations, especially when they screw up. They're not on the same page. It also means that your characters don't talk like humans, but rather encyclopedic encyclopedic robots who provide emotions or exposition as the story requires. I'll use Qui-Gon Jinn as an example. Qui-Gon Jinn has the potential to be a merger of two excellent char- character types, the mentor, a la Obi-Wan, or the gr- and the grounded rebel, a la Han Solo. He has the presence and knowledge to teach, but also has some of the problems with authority, especially when it goes against his personal beliefs and instincts. What Qui-Gon is lacking is a well-explored flaw. While there are a handful of moments that indicate he's blind blind to logic outside of his own, as well as some references to past events by Obi-Wan, you don't really see Qui-Gon rebel minus his defense of Anakin. We only know Qui-Gon is right or wrong based on what we already know about Anakin and his eventual descent to the dark side. When he bets on Anakin's pod race, we already know Anakin is going to be a Jedi, which means that the outcome is never truly in doubt. When he insists on training Anakin, we know that's a mistake because Anakin becomes Darth Vader. But he's also not kind of not wrong because Luke and Leia do bring balance eventually. His belief in Anakin is defined by a prophecy, and that's about it. A lot of scenes in these movies depend on the series lore to fill in the blanks. 
For a quick rewrite, imagine if Qui-Gon was a bit reckless, not just a rule-breaker, but someone who made risky moves on a regular basis. Someone who taught Obi-Wan to trust his instincts above everything else, including standard safety protocols. Someone who has a lot of reasons to distrust, distrust the Jedi besides the refusal to train Anakin. Someone who thought the Jedi's rules robbed them of insight, and Obi-Wan could grapple with who's right, the Council, or his master. Makes his death hit harder, right? Makes Obi-Wan's insistence on training Anakin make more sense, Giving him a stronger motivation enhances everyone's journey out of necessity and helps to develop those characters moving forward. And that's just one character. Character progression is another giant problem in these movies. So let's get to part two, which is character progression. If you're going to have a trilogy of films, you want your existing characters to progress and evolve over the course of said films. If your heroes either stay in place or seemingly change overnight, that doesn't make a lot of sense and gets boring really fast. That's why Han Solo goes from non-believer to re rebel general over the course of three films, just as Luke goes from fresh-faced newbie to seasoned Jedi master, and Leia's motivations evolve from societal to personal and romantic, and even touches into the Force by, the, by her end. Though mostly she's the same because her persona was near-perfect from the jump. Anyways. What these movies lack are characters who really grow and change over the course of the trilogy. Obi-Wan is reserved and well-meaning the entire time. Palpatine is plotting, 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 plotting before his lightning-fueled reveals. And Padme is conflicted about Anakin's apparent dual-natured, but committed to him. And it's not great that that's her defining characteristic. And if your character doesn't evolve much outside the baseline missions and relationships, you're running into the same emotional investment problem we talked about earlier. Anakin is the lone exception to this, since he goes from a whimsical little boy to Darth Vader in the course of three movies, but that has its own problems. The desire to protect the people he loves at any cost makes sense, but every step in that direction feels like a switch that's been flipped. He loves Padme because he's always loved her, ew, and Padme somehow bonds with him while he's protecting her. His mom dies because he needs to feel lost and show the first sign of the murderous rage he'll get into Vader that'll get him into Vader territory later. He's haunted by visions of Padme in pain in Revenge of the Sith because he needs to be afraid she'll die. When Padme has always come out the other side of danger, including two massive war battles. What this trilogy really needed was for Anakin to become disillusioned with the Jedi way. The places are all the pieces are all there. Why shouldn't he be able to feel anger at the loss of his mother or joy from his love with Padme? How can the Jedi be effective protectors if they fail to understand complex emotions and motivations of this galaxy's beings. Maybe the Jedi's refusal to address the dark side makes them blind to someone like Palpatine. You've got a lot of reasons to reject the Jedi way of life. Instead, what these films do is frame Anakin's turn as a misguided choice between two options. Either you go full dark side and or you lose your loved ones, a choice we already know is false. Imagine how much more effective it would be if Padme was nearly killed because someone the Jedi allowed to live came back. It's a small change that would make Anakin's turn feel like a payoff years in the making versus the next plot point on the journey to Vader. And now we've run into this trilogy's biggest problem. Themes. I talk a lot about intent versus what's on screen in these write-ups, the point being that it takes a lot of good filmmaking to translate a good theme or idea from the page onto the screen, including what you write, what you shoot, what you cut, and how everything is performed. Even in very flawed movies, you can see what idea the filmmaker is trying to convey and analyze if they're, when, where their delivery slipped up. I bring this up because I think a lot of people have projected different meanings onto this, these movies than what's on screen. 
If I had to sum up the themes of this trilogy, it would be that emotions are bad, and so is hubris, which is an emotion that clouds your judgment. I've honestly tried to think of another message that I can glean from these movies, but that's it. So why did I come to that conclusion? Because intentional or not, every, every failure by the Jedi or Anakin in this trilogy can be boiled down to emotions leading to bad decisions. When Anakin is first brought before the Jedi Council, Yoda and company decide he can't be trained because he's too fearful. As Yoda says, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. And the next two movies prove them right. The Council bends their rules because Qui-Gon is murdered by Darth Maul and decide to let Obi-Wan honor his master's dying wish to fulfill the prophecy. And the next two movies prove that this emotional choice was wrong. In Attack of the Clones, Anakin is so overwhelmed by the love for his mother that he leaves his duty and commits a massacre and breaks Jedi rules by marrying Padme. He's also so overconfident in his abilities that he goes rogue in a fight with Count Dooku and has to be bailed out by Yoda. In Revenge of the Sith, Anakin is so fearful of losing Padme that he agrees to more massacring and becomes Darth Vader. He then attacks his wife because these emotions have poisoned his mind and he believes his nothing but loyal wife is trying to betray him. He's also so overconfident in his abilities that he attempts to take a superior position from Obi-Wan and nearly loses his life. Based on what happens in these movies, emotions lead to bad decisions. Every time Anakin makes an emotional decision, it has a dire consequence for himself or the galaxy. The Jedi Council pegged him right from the beginning. In fact, he was so afraid of losing someone that he was easy, easily manipulated by Palpatine and became so out of control that he caused Padme's death. Now, I've heard people say that the movies are actually about the Jedi's failure to address emotions, so they're good, actually. And I just don't see the evidence on screen. The Jedi are portrayed as gullible and clueless, but not as a restrictive force that led to their own downfall. Every scene where Anakin demonstrates a strong emotion, however, is either played as ominous or villainous, including freaky eye acting from Hayden Christensen, low angle shots, and music stings from John Williams. This even happens during Anakin and Padme's wedding ceremony, where the camera lingers on his robot hand, showing how he's already drifting into inhuman territory. You also have to consider that the character Anakin is contrasted with in these films, Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan is Anakin's mentor in the second and third movies, and the one who's constantly telling Anakin to avoid giving into his emotions, be they pride, anger, what have you. Their relationship is played as a conflict of ideals. Obi-Wan is a representative of the Jedi's emotional restraint, and Anakin is basically a teenager who doesn't want to clean his room and thinks he's king shit because he was prophesied to be a savior. Ideally, these conflicting ideals would be a search for middle ground between their two approaches, which would validate Anakin's concerns. In a we-need-to-find-middle-ground story, Obi-Wan and Anakin would both bend a bit, learn a bit, and find middle ground. Obi-Wan starts to trust Anakin's risky plays, and Anakin realizes why restraint is important. But there's none of that. Obi-Wan's straight-laced approach is always right, and Anakin always pays a heavy toll when he doesn't listen. The first fight with Count Dooku is my go-to example. Before Obi-Wan and Anakin engage Dooku, Obi-Wan makes a distinctive point of telling Anakin that Dooku is stronger than they are, and they need to work together in a coordinated and calm manner to take it out. Unfortunately, Anakin is easy to goad, and he goes full Leroy Jenkins, charging in like an idiot hopped up on his own hype, and Dooku is e able to easily capacitate them both. By all accounts, Anakin should stand down and let go once Obi-Wan is down, but his pride and anger get the better of him, and he attempts to take down Dooku with two lightsabers. 
and loses a hand for his trouble. The only reason Anakin and Obi-Wan aren't killed is because Yoda comes in to save the day. And considering the first guy in the series who didn't listen to Obi-Wan and went in for a blind emotional fury charge also lost a hand in the process, needed last-second bailout from an ally, and also went by the name Skywalker, the movie's pretty clear. Listen to Obi-Wan. He is right. Keep those emotions in check. What makes this extra frustrating is that Anakin is played as a teenager in performance, writing, and abilities. It makes perfect sense that an emotional adolescent like Anakin would have volatile spikes in emotion that needed to be dealt with and processed in healthy ways that would lead to something peaceful. But these movies seem to say, nope, that's wrong, little Johnny. If you don't get that in check, it could destroy the world. And finally, we get to weaponizing nostalgia. A common defense I hear of the prequels is that they're well-intentioned, which is a loaded statement to say the least. I've mostly seen this argument as a dig against the new trilogy, which implies that said films have bad intentions, which in and of itself seems to be a roundabout way of saying these fil- these are soulless corporate movies that rely entirely on nostalgia, versus Lucas's earnest attempts to expand and explain the world he created. And yes, J.J. Abrams has a bad habit of leaning on nostalgia for big moments. But I think these folks are missing something about the prequels. They weaponize nostalgia in a different way. One of the big reasons the prequels frustrate me is that they weaponize and seemingly ignore their inherent dramatic irony. What the audience knows, something what the audience knows, something on the uh, characters on screen don't, depending on the needs of the scene. The standard viewer for this movie knows a lot about Star Wars and its history going in, specifically that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader and certain players like Obi-Wan and Yoda will live until a new hope and possibly beyond. And there are so many scenes where the tension is intentionally ratcheted up, ratcheted up by said knowledge. Let's take a scene like Obi-Wan discovering the clone army. For Obi-Wan, the discovery of a giant army of clones in helmets is oft-putting, but not a red alert. But for the viewer who's seen all these movies before, we know this is a big problem. These are stormtroopers. Stormtroopers are bad. Why doesn't Obi-Wan realize these are bad? Wait, they're all based off Boba Fett's father? That's even worse. Kill all these things with fire! makes every use of the clone army an obvious step in the wrong direction as far as the audience is concerned. And yes, it is freaky in any other movie to discover a giant army that nobody ordered like a, like a rogue military McDonald's and them being stormtroopers could be a great twist of the knife. But we know they're stormtroopers the second we see them, which is why we immediately know they're bad. It's a subtle difference, but it changes the impact. A lot of these movies' biggest moments only land the way they do because we know how things turn out, which stinks because it also means that scenes that don't need, need it to raise the stakes are undercut because of what we know. We know Obi-Wan can't die in a fight, so even when his back is against the wall during his Darth Maul fight, we're mostly wondering how he gets out of it, not about him surviving. I don't think any of these scenes are flawed by themselves. One of the reasons the Darth Maul fight is so great is because it allows Obi-Wan to officially become come into his own as a Jedi and provides an emotional reason for him to train Anakin, because a new character, Qui-Gon Jinn, was killed. And I think the Clone, War car- Clone Wars cartoons, admittedly I've seen little, uh, figured out a fix for this. While the characters we know are present, a lot of the plot hinges on new characters who may or may not make it out of the conflict alive. So while we can be rest assured that Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Mace Windu will at least make it to the Revenge of the Sith time, other characters like Ashoka Tano and revitalized Darth Maul are up in the air. It adds an unpredictable element to a story with a lot of predetermined fates. The show also does a great job at less heavy-handed foreshadowing. In the show, Anakin is shown to go outside the chain of command to do what he thinks is right and defend the people he cares about, and go dark every now and then. 
Not a semi-provoked massacre, more like a fight where he behaves more violently than necessary to win and seems to give in to his baser impulses. It's a less blunt instrument than the murder of an entire colony of women and children included. As much as I've critiqued this movie, these movies and will to anyone who holds them as a shining beacon of what a Star Wars film should be, the bones of a great trilogy are there. But these movies' Achilles' heel is precisely what the films are afraid of, emotional connection. You need these characters to relate to, who feel flawed and real, that you can see aspects of yourself in. I'll put this another way. Who is your favorite Star Wars character? In the original trilogy, my guy was Luke Skywalker. He's blonde, eager to learn about the mystical force that gives him magic powers, and eager to fight for what's right. I can tell you all the things I like about him. Others go for Leia or Han or maybe even C-3PO or Chewie, but you've got someone to latch on to. When I think about the prequels, I have no answers. The closest I have is Obi-Wan, because he's nice, kind of funny, a good fighter, and he's played by Ian McGregor. But he really shouldn't be the only one, because this is Anakin's story, his tragedy, his fall. We should be heartbroken about what could have been. And the fact that anyone seeing themselves as Anakin Skywalker in these movies in a story about his downfall from villain to hero scares the crap out of me speaks volumes. This has been Scott's Off Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Off Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.